There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Finn Longman about their YA novel, The Butterfly Assassin. Finn is a queer, disabled writer and medievalist, originally from London. After graduating from Cambridge, Finn went on to study for an MA in early and medieval Irish. In this episode, we discuss how their own chronic illness inspired their main character, the way they did their world-building retrospectively, and planning a novel when it's part of a trilogy. But first, here's Finn with an excerpt from The Butterfly Assassin. Located in the middle of the civilian borough of Lutton, Fraser Secondary School is a mess of mismatched architecture. The grass-roofed extension with its glass and solar panels nestled against the brutalist concrete pile of its original building. It's also the closest thing Isabel's going to get to a new start. From now on, she's an ordinary 17-year-old girl who is going to go to school, get some qualifications, and not kill anybody. Else. Not kill anybody else. Isabel's an experienced liar, but establishing herself at the Fraser required more than a confident tone and an innocent expression. Being abruptly pulled out of school 18 months ago by her parents means her real academic record is patchy, and smoothing over the gaps is a delicate operation. She forged herself a set of level 2 qualifications, since without them she'd be limited to industrial jobs and apprenticeships. It doesn't feel too dishonest. If she'd been given the chance to finish fifth year, she'd have taken them at sixteen like everybody else. But she can't forge memories she doesn't have, and it's easier to drop down a year and start level threes from the beginning than try to muddle through with a year's worth of missing knowledge. The extra year also buys her time, putting off the moment she has to figure out what's next. The University of Central Espera is theoretically neutral, but it's a pie the guilds have their fingers in, and it's not like she could afford the civilian fees. And if there's a job out there that would let her stay hidden, she hasn't found it yet. School is the safest place for her. The longer she can stay here, the better. Her teachers have been told that Bella Nichols was homeschooled due to poor health, which isn't entirely a lie. This non-specific tragic backstory does double duty as an easy explanation for why she sometimes has to duck into an empty classroom when the chaos and noise of the crowded school corridors become overwhelming, and why she's not up to date on all the pop culture references that pepper her classmates' conversations. But blending in is about more than what's on paper, and every day Isabel is confronted by the differences between herself and her classmates. Hi Finn, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your young adult novel, The Butterfly Assassin. Thanks for having me. 
So can you start by telling us what it's all about? Yeah, so um, The Butterfly Assassin is a young adult thriller about a traumatised teenage assassin who is trying and failing to live a normal life in a fictional closed city in Yorkshire. And by failing, I mean she kills someone in chapter one. Um, <laughs> so that's not going great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you know, the, the first number one rule of trying to not be an assassin will probably not kill any more people. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> one of the things I was so impressed with with this novel was your world building and I know we're going to really touch on that later and talk about all the levels of world building you did but I want to know and I, I'm guessing this is going to be an in-depth answer where this novel all began like and I'm kind of thinking did it start with Isabel your main character? Yeah it did um, she was actually originally the secondary character in a totally different book um, it was a crime or like murder mystery novel and she was the main character's secretary and she, her backstory was that she used to be an assassin but now in her 20s she's left it behind she's become the secretary character and when people start being murdered near her workplace obviously suspicion falls on her but she's not the killer um i never figured out who the killer actually was and thus i never finished the book because that's actually a crucial piece of information <laughs> to have um and a couple of years later, I was like looking at this character. I was like, I really started this story in the wrong place. Like her backstory is definitely the most interesting thing about her. So I started digging into that and asking like, under what circumstances had a teenager become an assassin? Like what world did she need to live in for that to be her best option? And how had she ended up where she was? And once I started asking those questions, then the story just developed out of the answers. Yeah, I think a lot of writers, their story starts when they kind of start digging and saying well why would this happen and why would this character be in this place and it often does start I think with character so I want to touch a little bit more on Isabel because your author's note and if anyone has a copy of your book and hasn't read the author's note then they need to go and do that right now um your author's note touches on kind of your own experiences with trauma and illness and how that inspired parts of Isabel's life so can you tell us about that and also a little bit more about her character yeah, so it's one of those things where I didn't I didn't set out to write a story that drew on any of my own experiences, just inevitably they shaped it. Um, I wrote the first draft of the book in 2014, which was the end of one of the sort of toughest years of my life, because in 2013, I developed debilitating chronic pain in my hands and wrists. And it was an overuse injury at first, but thanks to my hypermobility, it didn't heal the way it should have done. So I ended up basically losing the use of my hands for a good part of the year. And I had to do all my writing and my schoolwork using voice recognition software. I sat my A-levels using voice recognition. And before that, I'd been a musician and I was actually two weeks from taking grade eight violin when I hurt my hands. So that obviously never happened. So I lost music, which was my main hobby, apart from writing. And with that, I lost my whole social life, which revolved around orchestras and other ensembles. So I was very isolated, very cut off from all of my sort of coping mechanisms and um, felt very out of control of my body and my life. And I was obviously also in a ton of pain, which uh, is never great. Um, so my mental health kind of took a nosedive, which wasn't helped by the fact that I was very severely anemic, which nobody noticed because the doctors were failing to run blood tests. Um, and when they finally did realize and realized how sick I was, they put me on iron supplements and so on. And like it felt like I was coming back to life. But they didn't investigate the cause of the anemia. And it wasn't until a couple of years later I got diagnosed with celiac disease, which was probably the cause. Um, and 
so that thanks to the celiac and my subsequent IBS diagnosis, I know what it's like to get poisoned, which is something that Isabel experiences in this book. I joke that I am super easy to poison because you don't need to bother with actual poisons when you can just throw a few crumbs of gluten into my meal and boom, three days of suffering. Um, so a lot of my experiences of pain and medical incompetence and also like medical misogyny, because although I'm non-binary, I'm still perceived by doctors as female most of the time. And that's how they treated me and that was definitely a factor in why they didn't investigate my anemia more because they just dismissed it as a menstrual issue um and there was actually an autoimmune condition causing it um so a lot of those feelings of being failed by the people who were supposed to help you ended up going into the book but also just overall that theme of losing control over your body and over your life and feeling like your choices aren't yours anymore because your body has failed you so that very much developed out of my experiences of becoming disabled at 17. And this book is about, you know, Isabel is 17 and she is facing that loss of control, that loss of sort of self um, that comes from realizing the only thing you could rely on, your body, is now no longer yours. Um, and she's also being failed by a lot of the people around her and a lot of my rage about that ended up in there. <laughs> yeah, and there's also a lot of her backstory is to do with being trained as a as a child to become this teenage assassin and um there's a lot of backstory with her parents and a lot of trauma surrounding kind of how she was treated by people that she was supposed to you know have a good relationship with and like you say medically um she goes through this experience where she's poisoned and doesn't really know what's going on in her body doesn't know where the poisons come from so i can see how your own experiences really help helped you is not and obviously it's not a positive thing for you but in a in a positive way something good came out of it because you were able to use these real life experience to write this novel yeah definitely it was a, a silver lining to having a really bad time I should add that my parents are nowhere near um <laughs> like yeah. <good> for that <laughs> yeah I uh, I made a note when I signed them a copy of the butterfly assassin I was like don't worry Ian and Judith are not based on you um, <laughs> so I just want to put that out there that part of this yeah. backstory does not reflect my life <laughs> I always feel like this with my book both the parents are dead and the the grandmother is horrible and I had lovely grandparents and both my parents were alive so you know there's no relation there either yeah it's very hard with YA because the parents are always either dead or terrible because yeah. otherwise you're part of a story you and need that traumatized nobody... teenager yeah exactly I keep having to say to my parents no you're not allowed to read this one one day I'll write one that you're allowed to read just not this one <laughs> <laughs> So as I mentioned earlier, you've done a really impressive amount of world building. You've built this fictional city with its own language and history and politics and society. And in your author's note, you really delve into the kind of the backstory and the history and the why of how you were inspired by real world events and history. Um, but for the benefit of the podcast listeners who haven't picked up your book yet, can you explain how you were inspired by history and how you created the world that Isabel lives in. I'll start by like just explaining the city a little bit. So it's the city called Eskara and it was founded during World War One, um, originally as a weapons development, scientific research, intelligence base for the Allies. Um, and later it declared independence and closed itself off from the world. And those weapons developers became guilds of assassins who control the city. And we pick it up about a century after it declared independence. So near future from now. Um, and I should say, I do a lot of my world building retrospectively. I write a book that makes no sense. I go back and figure 
figure out ways to make that world building make sense. Isabel's first language is Esperanto, um, which is what the city is named after. And it being Isabel's first language was originally a joke, but it ended up giving me a key piece of the city's backstory because it was founded during World War One. It was an allied effort and those scientists and spies would have needed a common language to communicate with. So why wouldn't they have chosen Esperanto, which was constructed to be this international language and to be this tool of unity. Um, I also kind of thought I'd invented closed cities as a concept when I started. And then once I started looking into it, I realized I hadn't. There have historically been all sorts of closed cities, um, and a lot of them were built in the 20th century, especially in Russia, for nuclear research. So the, the idea of a city focused on weapons development turned out not to be that original after all. And uh, one city that particularly interests me is Ozyersk, also known as City 40, which is still a closed city. Um, a lot of the others have now been opened up to the world and, you know, you can go in and out, but not Ozyersk. And if you look it up on Google Maps, you can take the little Street View guy right up as far as the gates and no further. And I did some research into Ozyersk. Um, there was a documentary about it. And I listened to some interviews with a human rights campaigner who had fled the city, um, partly just to try and get a sense of the psychology of people who grow up in a closed city. You grow up never seeing the outside world and kind of perceiving the outside world as enemies on some level, but also just how they work on a logistical level in terms of like what goods are imported, what goods are produced. Um, and the way Espera works isn't identical to any real cities, but it definitely helped me to figure out what questions I needed to ask and what the answers might be. And I also took some inspiration from Berlin and the Berlin Wall, especially the fact that my city is covered in street art and all the walls are painted. Um, and then there's some stuff that's not history, there's some that's modern day. So there's a lot of my rage about the military in this book, um, particularly the normalization of it in our society, especially the recruitment of teenagers. Um, a fifth of new recruits into the UK military are under the age of 18 and a quarter in the army specifically. But even before that, you have things like cadets and there's a lot of recruitment material that targets teenagers who are lacking in other options. So, for example, they really target like GCSE results day. Um, you'll get adverts on Facebook and social media then trying to get people to join the military. And I have a lot of problems with that. So the book is also exploring everyday militarism and the way that teenagers are trapped into becoming tools of a violent state before they've had a chance to figure out who and what they really want to be. Your research sounds so fascinating <laughs> and it's really reassuring for me to hear that you did a lot of it retrospectively because if you'd come at the book with all that in your head that in a way makes me feel like you would have been blocked somehow from being oh creative. I would never have been able to do that and some yeah. of it happened really late in the process like um you know I said I first wrote the book in 2014 a lot of the stuff about Ozyersk I was reading in 2021 like it was that late in the process and you know I'm always layering in things as I go and um kind of I realize I have a problem then I go look for real world examples to see if I can solve that problem because why would I make it up if someone else already did it mm. um and yeah I, I mean I do everything back to front I I write things in a silly order it's just how it <laughs> well I don't know it's reassuring for me because it sounds similar to how I came up with my island and a lot of the a lot of the research came afterwards and because a bit like you I was kind of just throwing stuff at a wall and hoping it would work and then I had editors look at it and go mm, you're kind of mixing southern hemisphere and northern hemisphere and it's not really working and so yeah like you I had to kind of go back and 
fill in gaps and do world building afterwards which is yeah. you, as I've, I feel like you I feel like maybe that's not the right way around of doing it but it, it worked <laughs> so you know yeah so, I think also by that point you know what questions you need to ask mm. for the story to work whereas if you start with the world you can go off for ages on a tangent that won't actually be useful to you and mm. don't get me wrong I know things about this city that will never be on page I had to figure <laughs> out like who's responsible for the waste management services just because I needed to know it for myself yeah, yeah. it's never in the book but I you needed know, to you know. never know it could come up in a book club question or <laughs> I could write to you and ask because I did a book club last week and someone asked me about imports and exports and I was like you know what I've done the work I can answer this yeah. it's fine. um so how how useful for you do you think it is for people who are trying to do this world building I, I guess you've already answered this but how useful is it to kind of use history and contemporary inspiration to help make the world as believable as possible? Uh, yeah, I think it's super useful. I mean, some of it's like every time I ask myself, you know, am I going too far? Is it possible that people would let a city get away with this? Like every time I was like, maybe this is too bad. Then the real world would just do something worse. And I was like, you know, this was not a competition. I didn't actually want society to continually prove to me that it didn't care about children. Uh, but it also just helps so that you're not reinventing the wheel. Like, why would I figure out all the logistics of a closed city from the ground up when somebody's already done that work for me? Um, mm. Being able to borrow from real life means you know that the things work because they have worked. They mm. are working. You can see them happening. Um, so it definitely, definitely saves a lot of effort, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a it's a good bit of advice if anyone's writing a world that's not ours to to look at examples from history. So I wanted to touch on some of the relationships in your novel and allegiances because we have some surprising ones, ones that are a bit unexpected. And a lot of the characters in your novel are morally grey, maybe duplicitous. So how was it for you? Was it a challenge to write characters that have kind of multiple sides and, and maybe betrayals to them? Uh, so what you need to understand me, about me as a writer is that I have always been like this. Like nobody is ever having a good time in my books. When I was <laughs> nine, I wrote a story in which the main character gets her throat ripped out by her werewolf best friend, who is then devastated by grief about what she's done. Um, so characters doing awful things to each other, whether intentionally or not, has been a theme in my writing since I was very young, which is probably a sign that there's something wrong with me. Um, I will say because I'm not a plotter, I don't always know which characters are going to double cross each other until I get there. So then I have to go back and seed it in and make sure the character like is consistent. So if you look really hard, the clues are there. It doesn't come out of nowhere, but it's not too obvious. Uh, but morally great characters have always interested me, particularly those who become something they never wanted to be against their own will. Like I like exploring culpability and guilt because a character might be guilty of an act, but are they culpable if they were traumatized or forced into it? Like I don't believe redemption and forgiveness are the same thing. So I don't think there's any such thing as beyond redemption, even if I think some things are unforgivable. And I'm often playing with that when I write, like how bad can I let this character become before the reader stops sympathizing with them and before what's happened to them stops being like an appropriate justification for how they ended up in this mess mm. yeah and I think Isabel is definitely one of those characters where like you say there are things that she does that you think are they justified or is it a product of her environment and the way she was raised you know it makes you question yeah. those things and I mean definitely as a pacifist I am 
basically never advocating murder in real life. Um, but I also do think, yeah, there is this difference between did this character do the right thing? Definitely not. But can we blame this character for doing the wrong thing? Also not necessarily. So it is that splitting off of whether an action is morally justified is a separate thing from whether we're going to treat that character as if they are evil or as if they, you know, don't have any hope for redemption. So I think I can say The Butterfly Assassin is the first in a trilogy. Yep. So how much did that impact upon your writing process when it came to kind of keeping the story threads going and maybe leaving certain things open, but also making that book a standalone satisfying read? So it has always been a trilogy in my head. And actually it was originally planned as a prequel to that crime novel that I mentioned earlier. I was like, okay, I'm gonna explore this character's backstory. And a friend read my synopsis and pointed out it made a lot more sense as two books. So I split it into book one and two. Um, and then these days my book three plans don't look anything like that original novel that just happened to be my starting point. It means I've always known vaguely where I was going and what I was building to. And I did make sure the book one could stand alone, but I do think the ending might feel a little abrupt if you think that's all there is. Because um, although this part of Isabel's arc has wrapped up, like it's very clear that her story isn't over. Um, and that, you know, we've, we've actually opened a door rather than closed mm -hmm. all of them. And one thing I worked on in edits was making sure that like there were some goals that were achieved in book one and some elements that were wrapped up because in earlier stages, I definitely felt it it didn't stand alone as well. And there were also various details I added in that would be important later because I've had a draft of book two on hand for ages, which is quite useful for me as someone who likes to work backwards. You know, I know where I'm going. I knew which world building elements I needed to introduce so that I can use them in book two, uh, which I wouldn't have been able to do if I wrote them in order. So mm -hmm. if there's anything in there that you're like, huh, that didn't feel like it went as many places as, as I was expecting it to. It, there's a strong chance it's coming up later. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you briefly mentioned earlier that you said you're not a planner, but then surely you have to have some big overarching plan in mind to have a trilogy. I don't know. Well, yeah. So, I mean, this is one of the very few books where I did outline it before I wrote it. And that's how my friend was able to tell me I was trying to write two books at once. But like the current book doesn't bear any resemblance to that original outline. And that is always what happens to me. I write an outline and then I deviate from it in about chapter two. And then I just sort of <laughs> wave sadly to it from a distance like it was nice knowing you. Bye. Um, and then I mess it all up. What I've mostly done is I've worked backwards. Like I, I've gone through, I've, I've taken things through to their conclusions and then gone, OK, now what what do I need to do in book one to make that work in book mm. three? And I think I'm in awe of people who can write a trilogy in order. Um, and who can have like book one published and everything before they even start thinking about the rest. I could not do that because I'm always having to go back and forth and like work backwards. Um, so the only reason I have an overarching plan is because I've already got there and then come back again. Mm. Yeah, because imagine if you hadn't and then you'd suddenly wanted to include something in book one that was going to come up again in book two or three and you were like, I can't now, it's published. Yeah, exactly. Like um, the free press who are briefly appear as a sort of abolitionist anti-guild faction in book one. Like they're very, very minor in book one. They're very important later on. If I if I didn't know where I was going with that, they wouldn't have been in book one mm -hmm. at all. Um, and that would have been a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So I'm going to direct listeners of this podcast to your writing blog in the show notes because I think it's a great resource for anyone who is writing a novel or hoping to get published and you've kind of journeyed your you've written about your your journey to publication and um I read there first of all that it was like your 15th novel or something um and also that it started life in 2014 and you wrote it during Camp NaNoWriMo and then you went on every year to redraft it over and over again until you're happy with it so was your ultimate goal always to be published and after you've kind of told us a little bit about that can you tell us how you went from NaNoWriMo to getting an agent? Yeah so it is the 15th book I wrote and I've written something like 23 in total Um, and I've always wanted to be published ever since I was a kid like when I was like 11 I was printing out submission guidelines for publishers and stuff but I didn't actually (laughs) that's a whole other level yeah I didn't do anything much with it I did query a couple of books before this one but only in a very perfunctory way like I'd send out six or so queries and then realize I wanted to rewrite it and stop um I knew once I wrote this one like that it had something a bit different about it that was more marketable um this was in fact the first non-terrible book I wrote um I did 14 terrible ones first but it took me a long time to be happy with it enough to query it and I didn't do it alone like I entered it into pitch wars twice in 2016 and 2018 and I didn't get selected either time so then I carried on working on it alone and then in 2019 I entered author mental match um kind of on a whim like I found out about it during the submission window and I just kind of slammed together a query threw it in forgot all about it until I got the email telling me I've been selected and I was like 
oh yeah I entered that thing didn't I so then I worked with Rory Power the author of Wilder Girls and we did some massive rewrites like I basically burned it down and rebuilt it from the ground up and it was after that I started querying but it didn't really get me anywhere um I had some full requests but no bites I was running out of agents I wanted to send to and then in April 2020 I pitched it during DB Pit which is a Twitter pitch event for marginalized authors and my agent Jessica Hare liked my tweet so it went from there. Um, and I wrote a lot of other things in between drafts of this book, I should say, as well. Like, mm. I did do a new draft every year of my adult life. <laughs> this is the first year where I have not written this book. But it wasn't six years of, like, continually working on it before I got agented. There were seven other books or so, you mm. know, in between. So it was a long journey, but it wasn't a continuous journey. Do you think if you hadn't got your agent, you'd still be tinkering with, with it now? I don't know, um, to be honest. I, yeah, it's really hard to say. Like, this book is, there's a lot of me in it, but at the same time, it is a reflection of 18 year old me as much as it's a reflection of sort of 25 year old me. Um, and there's a lot of things about it. I think if I was going to write it for the first time now, like, that isn't the story I would have written because I'm not the same person that I was then. And I think there would have come a point where I was like, okay, I need to move on and work on something else because I've worked on it for so long if it hadn't come to fruition then it probably was never going to yeah I was gonna say to you really because at what point because I know there will probably be people listening who have been working on novel for years and what comes what where's the point where you go this isn't going to go anywhere I'm not going to get anywhere with it I'm not going to get an agent I'm not going to get a book deal at what point do you kind of make that decision I mean you must have seen something in this novel that you wanted to carry on with and you knew had potential so yeah I mean how do you make that decision it's hard because like nothing else I ever pursued to the same extent so I don't really have experience of like when to shelve a book that you've actually queried properly mm. usually with previous books like some of those 14 novels I never even edited I just wrote first draft and I was like cool that was that moving on and then some of them I did edit but I eventually shelved because you know I realized there was a fundamental flaw and I didn't care enough about them to fix it because that's the some like sometimes you know they are fixable but I'm not invested enough and you have to be mm. really invested to write a book again from the ground up so um, I definitely think the point at which it starts to feel like a chore rather than something you actually care about that's that's a time that maybe the book has 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 run its course mm. um, I think with this one yeah I just always had the sense that it was a bit more self-contained and a bit more marketable than some of the other stuff I've written but to be fair the bar is very low because I write a lot of really niche really weird stuff <laughs> um and so having like a a thriller that was you know in in a single point of view and it was a manageable length and like I was like I also have a eight book fantasy series that spans 400 years and is mostly about medieval theology like no one's gonna <laughs> buy that so me saying that I saw something different in it is you know it's quite specific to my writing mm. <laughs> so I think for a lot of people you you sort of just have to go with your gut like do you mm. care about it is it the book of your heart um and also because I'd gone off and written other things in between then I could come back to it knowing that I'd improved as a writer whereas if you work on the same book continuously and you never move on to anything else I think you end up stagnating and you end up not growing as a writer and that's the point where you need to just write something else even if it's just for a break like mm. you just need to come you can come back to it later but you need to just change it up a bit and work out what you're trying to do yeah there was a really lovely quote on your blog that really resonated with me as well and it was you were saying that um when you were talking about redrafting that you said there's no 
it's not a waste of time because there's details in the book now that were in the first draft and that's a reminder to you that it is not it's not a waste of time to redraft because there'll be nuggets in there somewhere so do you enjoy I guess you must do if you're doing it every year you do you enjoy the kind of editing process and have you have you learned stuff just by doing it yourself Definitely. I mean, editing is when I do all the thinking and when I make everything work, when I make the world building work. I draft really fast. Um, I have been known to write a book in a week by accident, yeah. although like my prose is fine and serviceable from the beginning. Like I can write a clean, a clean draft in that regard, but my plots tend to be an absolute disaster. So editing is a fairly involved process of ripping the book apart and rewriting it from the ground up. But I enjoy the sense that I'm fixing problems because when I'm drafting, I'm just making problems for my future self to have to fix. And that can get a bit overwhelming sometimes. And I definitely learn something with every round of edits. Usually something I did wrong that I vow I will not do wrong next time and then immediately do wrong next time. Um, This time in my book two edits, I've learned to actually interrogate my character motivations and make sure they make sense because if they don't the whole plot falls apart um and in the last few years i've started writing like slightly cleaner first drafts where they get closer to the story i was trying to tell from an earlier stage because i think part of the reason that the butterfly assassin needed so many massive rewrites is because when i started it at 18 i didn't really know what i was trying to say Mm. um and what story it was that i was really telling Whereas now I have a lot more intentionality when I go into a book and a much stronger sense of the themes and so on. But it is funny what survives, even when I do these complete overhauls, like lines I don't expect to survive. And then I find it like it will show up spoken by a different character in a completely different scene. And I'm like, oh, hello, you've been here for a while, haven't you? (laughs) And you know when it's good because you don't get bored reading it. Whereas, you know, when you've read it 700 times, there are things that you're like, oh, this scene again yeah <laughs> the the one for me was um I had got kind of sick of it by the time we got to the proofing stage and then I was like I never want to read this again and then I listened to the audio um just before publication and there was a chapter that I had overhauled so many times because I couldn't make it work and then when I listened to it on audio it made me cry and I realized that like just having that degree of separation from my own work suddenly all of the emotions hit me and I was like oh this chapter is good oh yeah now I'm crying I had the exact same experience it's weird how the audiobook changes it I think it's because you're so used to hearing it in your own head and your own voice and the way you read it and it's having someone perform it and act out the emotions and it's like oh my god this is actually a book that I wrote (laughs) yeah definitely so I noticed as well in your acknowledgments that obviously the writing community is such a big important part of the writing process for you and in your blog you mentioned friends of yours and beta readers um, are a big part of how you get your book done basically so why do you think the writing community is so important for you? At all times I am just desperate for attention that's that's what it comes down to but no for real I mean I started writing seriously once I joined the writing website protagonized back in 2009 and like being around other writers reading each other's work it kept me accountable and it encouraged me to actually start finishing things because somebody cared about them other than me before that I would just get distracted and run off after another project whereas when you have a friend waiting to read it there's more of a motivation to actually get to the end and then with this one once I drafted it you know my my earliest beta readers who got emotional and yelled at me about certain plot points they convinced me it was worth 
working on and they give me someone to bounce ideas off when I'm struggling with plot points or titles or character names and then the author mentor match community the other mentees I mean they were crucial to me actually sticking with the querying process if anything it was like I got FOMO watching everyone else query and I was like okay I've got I've got to take the plunge I've got to get in on it because I've always I probably would have procrastinated on it for like another two years um and instead I saw them all sending out queries I was like okay okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and then obviously like the debuts chat has just kept me sane through the publishing process, which can be very, very opaque. And if you don't have other people to like chat about it with, you just go insane. And like some people might be able to do this stuff alone, but I definitely need external accountability. I need mm. encouragement. I'm, I'm very much an external processor. So I like to be able to talk things through, which is to say I send my beta readers very, very long messages at three in the morning where I'm actually just thinking out loud and <laughs> they just have to live with that. And then in turn, like helping other people with their bo books and their plot, that kind of can teach me a lot about mine. You know, I will solve someone else's plot problem because I'm applying to them the same principle I need to be applying to mine. And then I'm like, ah, I know how to do it now. BRB. <laughs> so I wondered if there's anything you know now as a debut author that you wish you'd known right at the beginning well if you told me when I was 13 that I would be 26 before I was published I'm not sure how I'd have taken that because I did build a lot of my identity around this idea of being a teen writer and uh, <laughs> when I turned 20 I had a whole existential crisis about it. it was ridiculous and I think 2014 me on the other hand would have just been grateful for any glimmer of hope um because it was a miserable year so just telling me it was going to get published would be enough I think there's a lot about my journey that wasn't predictable or that wouldn't have helped to know because I got my agent and my book deal during the pandemic for example and that changes things I do wish I'd known that like edits deadlines are really tight I'm talking like six weeks for big structural rewrites because I've always written fast so it's not impossible for me but everyone always told me it was ridiculous doing NaNoWriMo because no one would ever expect me to write that fast well everything in publishing has been expecting me to write that fast and it's lucky I've developed that skill but I could have used some warning because <laughs> it was actually it caught me out so much when they're like yeah you've got six weeks to rewrite the book and I'm like what <laughs> Yeah, we often talk about this, don't we, that in publishing it's two speeds. It's waiting, 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 waiting. Or it's, OK, your deadline is three weeks time or we need this now. And yeah. there's no in between. So I want to touch on kind of comparison novels with The Butterfly mm -hmm. Assassin and anyone that loves YA or they know someone that loves YA. I wanted to see whether you've got any novels that you can compare yours to. Yeah, so this is going to sound like extremely pretentious because it's such a bestseller, but I do think The Hunger Games isn't a bad comparison. I would agree. Item. I would agree. Yeah, because they are both stories about being trapped in a violent society that is turning you into someone you don't want to be and how hard it is to keep your heart and your compassion when you're being pushed into this kill or be killed like survival mode. And they're also both reflections on our own militarised society and how punishment in place of justice just perpetuates violent systems. And plus have a deeply traumatised teenage girl as their main character. So on a thematic level, there are a lot of comparative points there, even if the actual story and setting is very different. Mm. I also think people who enjoyed Butterfly Assassin might like This Savage Song by V.A. Schwab, which is a very different vibe genre-wise because that's more fantasy, but both ask questions of like what it means to be a monster, what it means to be human, um, and again about blame and guilt and culpability. And finally, um, a recent YA thriller that explores some of the same ideas of like 
Identity and Lies is The Girls I've Been by Tess Sharp, which I really enjoyed. And again, it's a pretty different vibe, but I think there's a fair bit of kind of overlap of readership there. And finally, without giving, well, I don't know how hard this is going to be, but <laughs> are you able to give us a little tease about the next book in the series without spoiling the first book? I don't know whether that's possible. Um, I can tell you that Isabel is, if possible, making even worse life choices than she made in book one. And she's doing a wonderful job of ruining her own life and that of everyone around her. Um, we see a lot more of the city of Espera in book two. It's like the camera has panned out to see us a much wider perspective on the world because book one is very focused on Isabel and it's very focused on her immediate concern of survival. Whereas book two, like the danger is less imminent. So we get to we get to pan out. We get to see more factions within the city, more characters who have a different perspective on the guilds. And we generally have a slightly larger cast, which is which is nice to play with. But we also have some familiar characters coming back like um, Dara and Mortimer, who are my favourites. They were meant to be minor characters and I got attached. to them. So. <laughs> I, I, I really feel the love for Mortimer. Like I feel like that's yeah. a character you really loved because <laughs> like that really comes across on the page. Do you know when we can expect the second book in the series? I think it's due to come out around the same time as the end of May next year. Finn, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today to talk about your novel. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was Finn Longman talking about their YA novel, The Butterfly Assassin, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.